Well, good morning, everybody. For those of you who do not know who I am, my name is Garrett, and I serve as the director of local missions here at Nova. So we are going to be in the Old Testament book of Zechariah today. It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and start flipping there now, chapter 1. And we are getting very close to wrapping up our current uh, sermon series on the Minor Prophets, which we have called Voices of Resistance and Hope. The prophets spoke to encourage people to resist that strange allure of straying away from God and his ways. And they also spoke of hope for those who are faithful. But what is this hope anyways? Like, what is it that those who follow Christ hope for? You know, when I was in um, Sunday school, maybe around kindergarten age, I remember a specific lesson about heaven. And explaining heaven to a bunch of kindergartners is a tough task. It's a pretty abstract concept. I think maybe some of us adults can kind of struggle with it as well. But anyways, the teacher asked us what our favorite thing in the world to do is. And then we kind of went all went around the room and shared. Uh, somebody said coloring. Somebody said uh, playing with my friends. Somebody said going to the movies. I think my answer was probably playing baseball or soccer or something like that. And our teacher then said, well, heaven is like doing your favorite thing, but it never stops. Now I know what she was getting at. You know, what's the greatest thing that you can imagine? Heaven's that, but even so much more. But honestly, I remember hearing that answer and kind of bumming me out a little bit. I follow Jesus so that one day I can play a never-ending game of baseball? Honestly, kind of sounds horrible. <laughs> what is our hope? Well, it's something that Zechariah uh, talks about at length. Our hope, quite simply, is restoration, it's redemption, renewal. You see, as Christians, we believe uh, that God's creation is good. He takes delight in it. And he created it to follow in his ways. But unfortunately, as we know, we all stray from God and his ways. And we get lost in the proverbial wilderness of our own making. Humans cannot help but cause harm to each other and to ourselves. And we need help. We need someone to rescue us. We need to be restored. And what we'll see throughout Zechariah is that God intends to do just that. Uh, so for those of you who are not familiar with Zechariah, it's a big book, at least by minor prophet standards. It's uh, 14 chapters long, and it covers a wide variety of topics and literary genres like dream prophecy and narrative and poetry and futuristic prophecy. All that to say is I'm not going to cover every little detail of Zechariah. Uh, however, the, this major theme of restoration, it runs through the entire thing, and so that's what we're going to focus on today. 
Zechariah is also interesting because it can actually be read in tandem with Haggai, which Dean preached on last week. Zechariah and Haggai were contemporaries of each other and actually prophesied and ministered to the exact same people at the exact same time in history. And so before we jump into the book itself, let me set the stage for us, remind you of the context of these two books. So in 597 BC, Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonian Empire. And after this happened, the Babylonians destroyed the temple and they carried off a large majority of their population into exile. Essentially, they deported most of the population from their home country of Judah to Babylon. Then, 60 years later, a different empire, Persia, conquered Babylon. And therefore, all of the Jewish people who were carried off into exile were now under Persian control. And the Persian king, Darius, was actually very sympathetic towards the Jewish people and God, for that matter, and allowed some of the Jewish people living in Babylon to return to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding. So a small minority of Jewish people left Babylon and returned to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding. In essence, they began the process of physical restoration. However, if you remember from Pastor Dean's sermon on Haggai last week, when the people returned to Jerusalem, they began to build their own homes before rebuilding the temple, God's home. But not only this, it says that they paneled their homes. Essentially, they put up excess decorations before even beginning work on the temple. And therefore, God's message to, or through Haggai to the people was to repent. Start giving God your first fruits, not your leftovers. And the people did repent, and it was, it's actually a really great story. And what we're going to see is that Zechariah's message to the people at this time, it's very similar but he's going to build off of Haggai's message. Whereas Haggai spoke primarily to the current need of physical restoration of the temple then and there, Zechariah's message spoke to the need of restoration in the people themselves and for the whole world, as well as God's promise to do so. So we're going to work through Zechariah a bit, uh, we're not going to read everything, but just take bits and pieces here and there. And what we're going to see is that this theme of restoration is woven throughout. All of the sermon, uh, or I'm, all the sermon notes uh, contain all of the passages we're going to read today. Uh, so it's nice and handy if you want to open that. Okay, this is Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is the, what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? 
Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and our practices deserve, just as he determined to do. Okay. So we see here that just like in Haggai, God called on his people to repent of their waywardness and wickedness. And you know what? They did. The back half of verse 6 says, Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. And so what we're going to see is that throughout the rest of Zechariah, God details his plans of restoration for his people and for the whole world because his people repented. In this way, the first step towards restoration is repentance. We can't be restored if we are unrepentant of the ways that we stray from God. And repentance is a rather simple concept. It's essentially acknowledging the ways that we have strayed from God, acknowledging that we were wrong, and then actively choosing to put these things aside and committing to actual change in this area of our lives that aligns with God and his character. Like, for example, um, imagine somebody who struggles with an anger issue. They lose their temper just a bit too easily, and it can end up hurting those around them. Maybe they don't even realize that this is an issue, but it is an issue. It's a character trait that strays away from God and his character. And this isn't to say that God doesn't get angry, but when we don't have control over anger, then it becomes uh, not God-honoring. Repentance would be this person coming to terms with this issue, acknowledging that they have been straying from God in this way and actively seeking to change this behavior to a more God-honoring ideal. And notice, repentance is not just saying you're sorry. Repentance is acknowledging of wrongdoing, but it must be followed up with tangible evidence of change. For you parents out there, I know each and every one of you had to teach your children to say sorry when they did something wrong, yes? Also, I am positive that each and every one of you has experienced a situation where your child has said sorry for something and then not five minutes later, they go and do the same thing, right? I'm getting some very emphatic nods on that one. That one connects a little bit. I'm sure at that point, you then teach them, hey, if you go and do the exact thing that you just said sorry for, you're not really that sorry, are you? Repentance is the same in this way. It is good to acknowledge the ways that we have strayed from God and confess. But if there's no tangible change, then we really aren't all that repentant, are we? Now, this is not to say that uh, when someone is repentant that they will then be perfect in this area of their lives. Far from it. In fact, it may end up being a struggle for the rest of their lives. There may even be some steps backwards at times. But we must always seek God and his way alone for our lives. 
I think the word repent and repentance can be a word that some of us struggle with. A lot of times, I think maybe some of us associate the word repent with a guy standing on a street corner with a bullhorn, just yelling at people come walking by, right? Or perhaps a televangelist doing the same thing, a real fire and brimstone type of teacher. And if there's one thing that I know for sure about human beings is that we love to be yelled at. Sarcasm, for those of you who may be sarcasm challenged. (laughs) So maybe some of you carry with you a little baggage when you hear this word. And quite frankly, I get it. But let me just offer this. Repentance in the Christian faith is an incredibly beautiful thing. Why? Because repentance entails you acknowledging and confessing the absolute worst parts about yourself, no matter what that may be. And it's always met with forgiveness and acceptance. Whereas if you confess the worst parts about yourself to the world or people in general, it may be met with judgment and condemnation. But when we repent to God, it is always met with profound love and forgiveness. It's freeing. It's liberating. And you know what is absolutely amazing is all God requires of us is repentance. He doesn't require us to be perfect. There's no proverbial scale where your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds. You can live a life filled with wrongdoing and you may think that you are so far from God, but you are not. And so if you are here today and you just feel like you are so far from God, that he would never forgive you That is absolutely, wholeheartedly, and unequivocally not true. And that's the greatest news of all. You don't need to flog yourselves, beat yourselves down. You don't need to listen to the condemnation of our world or anything else because God forgives you. Wherever you are at in life, whatever you have done in life, all he asks for is repentance. Acknowledge how you have strayed from him and actively seek to live a more God-honoring life in this way. Repentance is the first step towards restoration, and it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Okay. Now we're going to jump forward in Zechariah a little bit. We're going to jump forward to the beginning of chapter 7, once again, starting in verse 1. So again, those sermon notes have all the passages in them. Zechariah 7, verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regimalek together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years. Whenever you read these Old uh, Testament names, they can be tricky. I'm going to give you a uh, hint that one of my Old Testament professors gave me. 
Just say it quickly and confidently because nobody knows the difference. Okay, so we're gonna stop here just for just a second. Quick backstory. At this point in Zechariah, we now fast forward to the year 529 BC, which is 68 years after the Babylonian exile started. Now, there was another prophet named Jeremiah who prophesied way back when. And he prophesied that the exile was going to be exactly 70 years long. Therefore, the exile is almost completely at an end. King Darius had allowed some Jewish people to go and start rebuilding Jerusalem, but soon the exile is going to be completely done away with. They're only two years away. And now during the exile, it had become custom to mourn and fast during the fifth month of every year in commemoration of the exile itself and the destruction of Jerusalem. However, now that the exile is almost over, the people begin asking, well, do we still need to mourn and fast? Do we, keep need, do we need to keep doing this religious ritual? Listen closely to God's answer, starting in verse 4. Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests... When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months of the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And were you eating and and when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. I'm going to stop there. The Jewish people fasted and mourned and feasted when appropriate. But God said they did these things for themselves. And why? Because they did not follow these things up with taking care of the poor, the vulnerable foreigners, and they plotted evil against one another. The people did the religious things, but these religious things were empty. God is essentially saying to them, how many times do I have to tell you? Yes, I want your worship. Yes, I want your praise. But these are just empty rituals unless you actually go and care for those who need it because that is what I, God, am about. Listen to these words from another prophet, Amos. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. A life of worship must always coincide with caring for others, especially the vulnerable. This is Matthew 25, verses 34 through 40. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. A life of worship must always include caring for others, especially the vulnerable. And you know what? We try and take that very seriously here at Nova. It's why we have ministries like Feeding the Hungry, Laundry Love, Boxes of Blessings, which will be happening again in the near future, just so you know. Hands of Mercy and the Pine Top House Builds. This is also why we take seriously the crisis at the border and the Afghan refugee crisis. This is why we give regularly to Mexican Medical, the Deborah House, and other mission partners across the globe. This is why we partake in Operation Christmas Child every year and give a Christmas gift to a child who may not otherwise get one. This is why we would go and sing songs to the residents at the nursing homes right over there before COVID began. These aren't just nice little things that we do on the side, you know, they're optional or whatever. These are things that embody part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But our service of others should not just take place here at Nova. Serve others in your private lives. Or serve with other organizations for that matter. Maybe there is a need that Nova isn't currently addressing, one that just particularly tugs at your heartstrings. I'd personally love to help you find a place to serve at Nova or not at Nova. I have um, a good amount of friends who used to be Christians but aren't anymore. I don't really know why that's the case. It's not really a prerequisite to be my friends. It just happened that way. Um, But as 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 a pastoral leader here at Nova, I'm always curious. What happened? Like, what made, what makes somebody want to leave the church and their faith? So I ask people and, you know, their answers do vary. um, But there is one commonality that I have noticed quite frequently 
And it goes along the lines of, it just seems like for a lot of these people, the church doesn't do a lot of the times what they say they should be doing, or the church seems to be inwardly focused. They want to take care of themselves, but they don't think about other people. And this criticism should be taken with a grain of salt, by the way, uh, because these people who have these criticisms aren't the ones who are going and serving at soup kitchens or anything like that. Um, And obviously it's not fully true either. But nevertheless, it's fascinating to notice that pattern. Maybe it's telling of something I'm not entirely sure. What's also fascinating, it's it's the exact warning that Zechariah gives in uh, chapter 7, what we just read. A life of worship can't just be about ourselves. And there's a very fine line with that. It needs to be about God first. But in worshiping of God, we then need to follow along in his ways, which is caring for others, caring for the vulnerable the poor, the oppressed. A life of worship must always include service of others, especially the vulnerable. Repentance is the first step towards restoration, and a life of worship must always include service of others. And as I've said multiple times already, restoration is the core theme of Zechariah, and so far I have talked about what God asks of us. But, ultimately, restoration does not come from us. It can't. We're too broken. Chapters 9 through 14 of Zechariah talk in depth about the restoration of creation, ushered in and begun by Jesus, and God's ultimate plan that one day all things will be made new. And so, uh, As we close out, let's just take a look at a few more passages. Jump with me uh, to chapter 9. We're going to read verses 9 through 12. Chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Remind you of somebody? I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. Essentially, God will put an end to violence and war. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Essentially, he will free them from death. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. See what he did there? No longer are we prisoners of death. We're prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. And one last time, let's jump ahead to chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. Chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. 
They will look on me, the one they have pierced. Once again, remind you of somebody. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Let's pause there for a second. Let's just read a little bit further. We're going to jump to chapter 13, verse 1. And we're going to read what comes about because of the one who is pierced. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, God's people, to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Like I said earlier, we all stray from God and get lost in a wilderness of our own making. But God does not sit on high and declare, well, too bad, should have followed me. Granted, he has every right to do so. He loves his creation. He loves each and every one of you, so much so that he enacted a rescue plan which entailed his son, God incarnate, being born a human, suffering alongside and behalf of us, dying a horrific death, and then conquering death by rising again. And because of Jesus, we are restored. We are made new. Now, evil still exists in the world. But just as Zechariah prophesied the coming Messiah, and it came to pass, so too does he prophesy about a time when sin and evil will be no more. It's a theme that's continually reiterated throughout the New Testament. A time when restoration, renewal, and redemption will be complete. It will come to pass. And that is our hope. 